0: Welcome to the Trial of the Chicago 7 podcast. In 1968, America was a nation in turmoil. The war in Vietnam raged on, claiming a thousand American lives each month. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis on April 4th. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed in Los Angeles. In late August, anti-war demonstrators gathered in Chicago to protest outside the Democratic National Convention... Violent clashes with the police and National Guard ensued. The organizers of those protests, along with Bobby Seale, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, were indicted for conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot. And so began one of the most bizarre and momentous trials in American history. I'm John Carroll Lynch, and I play Dave Dellinger, one of the defendants in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago Seven. In this podcast series, you'll be hearing about why Aaron felt compelled to make this film, the startling parallels between the events of 1968 and the trial, and what's happening in America today. And you'll hear from the actors and creative minds that realized the world of the film. Here is your host and narrator, Krista Smith.
1: It was just over a year ago that writer director Aaron Sorkin began principal photography on the trial of the Chicago Seven. In this episode, you're going to hear from four individuals who played a critical role in realizing the world of the film Faden Papa Michael, the director of photography, Susan Lyle, the costume designer, Shane Valentino, the production designer, and Alan Baumgarten, the editor. And while Sworkin is known for his highly specific vision, from the rhythm of each scene to every word spoken, you'll hear how each of these individuals brought their own creative instincts and talents to bear.
2: I love working with writer-directors because the vision is so pure and intact. Aaron writes a script... And he literally hears it in his head when he writes it. And when he's shooting it, he's paying attention to that, to getting the actual dialogue and performance of that dialogue as close to what he's looking for as possible.
1: This is editor Alan Baumgarten, who worked with Sorkin on Molly's Game and was nominated for an Academy Award for his work on American Hustle.
2: Aaron's scripts tend to have a fairly high page count. And yet somehow the cut comes out to a reasonable length. I'm amazed at that. My first cut came in very close to what we ended up with. Uh, It's really quite amazing that we're within a few minutes, ultimately. We did a lot of changes, we opened things up, we tightened and overlapped more, but the net result, and I think that's because Aaron has a script that's quite tight with the overlapping dialogue, with the intercutting, with the back and forth, I mean,
3: they say a movie gets made three times, like when you write it, when you shoot it, and then when you edit it. It's not in this case. I mean, it's, it's conceived once, and that's in Sorkin's mind when he first sits down.
1: That's Academy-nominated director of photography, Papa Michael, whose credits include Ford v. Ferrari and Nebraska.
3: My job is just to to get as close as possible to that vision and bring it, you know, to the screen, And and, and he gives me a lot of freedom in terms of Obviously, all the lens choices, the setups and stuff, but I'm also, you know, very conscious of what, what he actually wants. And, and when it's something that he doesn't want, he expresses it right away. It's almost like surprising him because he doesn't expect anyone to almost see it differently, which is, is great. It's like he knows exactly what he wants, but again, giving us the creative freedom to interpret.
1: Production designer Shane Valentino, whose credits include Nocturnal Animals and straight out of Compton, echoes this sentiment.
4: I'm grateful for that kind of trust. I'm a type of person that thrives in that environment. Um, It really gives me a lot more confidence and to sort of speak in a way that um, I I often don't have. You know, sometimes it's, you know, we're dictated to as opposed to really sort of relied on. Um, And so that's been very, very nice.
1: The film's dynamic structure, which shifts back and forth between time and place within scenes, presented the film's team with unique challenges. Breaking down the script into
5: story days and flashbacks was very complicated on this movie.
1: This is costume designer Susan Lyle, who previously collaborated with Sorkin on the film Molly's Game. As you break down the script,
5: some of these flashbacks might be one line a lot of them, so you really need to know where you are. And I had to build kind of a spreadsheet in order to fully understand where I was, because it could be 20, 30 scenes later, we have a flashback to that same day. So finding my my time and place was the first step, and it took forever. and. <laughs> Once I had it, though, I really had it, and as other people joined the production, I was able to contribute that to the sort of general <laughs> welfare of <laughs> of the crew, and 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 it really helps to have it, you know, in your head when you're uh, when you're meeting actors and talking
1: them through it. Papa Michael decided he needed to create a color-coded map so he could determine the days, times, and seasons.
3: I mean, this is the most I've you know, had to collaborate with a scriptuber as a checking, you know, what, what time is this, what day is it, what month, you know, what year. Um, but it's it's nice. I mean, I've made more notes on this script. I mean, I'm known for, you know, not planning too much and not preconceiving too much, but in this case... Um, Just to track all that, I broke down all the courtroom days, knowing what time of year and what time, uh, uh, you know, the the seasons. And and then I had this whole colored map, you know, day one. It's, you know, sunny in the courtroom, and we do two overcast days. Then it's another sunny day. So I had to keep, you know, more track of that than I usually do, which was great. It's a great challenge,
2: and, yeah.
1: Papa Michael's granular attention to these details would make a significant difference. Here's editor Alan Baumgarten.
2: He did a phenomenal job of lighting throughout the entire film, and it's really what gave a lot of the film its artistry and and beauty in the sense that uh, the courtroom had different looks for different days, different times of day, and the different locations were, were very carefully lit.
1: Baumgarten also explains that Papa Michael's use of multiple cameras provided a bounty of options in the
2: editing suite. We had a lot of options with coverage, thanks to Faden Papa Michael, the DP. The courtroom scenes had some beautiful wide shots, so we were able to stand back or feel the the scale of the room, and a lot of the coverage was over the shoulder or from a point of view that was a bit of a distance, so from the judge's POV or from the witness stand, the angles down to the courtroom or down to the uh, attorneys had the proper uh, rake and so forth, and we felt... Very naturalistic in a way.
1: In the courtroom scenes, the large ensemble cast trades fast paced, often overlapping dialogue, as you can hear from this clip.
0: No further questions. The court will stand. I wouldn't there
3: either. Mr. Seal. I wouldn't there at all. And I should be allowed to cross examine this witness. We will stand in recess until. Four hours. Mr. Hampton. That's how long Bobby Seal was in Chicago. Please. Four hours.
1: With that in mind, Papa Michael tailored his approach to shooting those scenes.
3: They are a tight group, and there are lots of moments where they're all interacting, acting. The dialogue, you know, it overlaps, and with the sound, and, and and I shoot multiple cameras on this more than I normally do. I mean, normally, um, the approach that there's one perfect angle, and the second one is you know, slightly compromised, but in this case, I mean, uh, it really made a lot of sense, and we wanted to give people the freedom to be able to, you know, overlap and and, and uh,
2: just, uh, you know, often keep the camera rolling, we do. We had coverage on all of the uh, actors, regardless of whether they were a primary focus of that particular scene, so we were able to get reactions of people rolling their eye or frustrated sighs, or just listening intently. This was a long trial, these were long days, and this was very serious uh, material that we were dealing with in terms of the stakes. And so every word mattered, every moment mattered, and to have the opportunity to cut around at will to the right people or right reactions uh, was very important.
1: For production designer Shane Valentino, the film's color palette was central to his approach.
4: This is not a documentary, right? So there are parameters so that people actually can, when they see it, they can say, oh, we're we're in that particular period. But then there is a lot, when you're inside those lines, you have a lot of flexibility. That's where we can play with color palette, right? So we can invoke some kind of feelings. In a lot of the films I've worked on, I've tried to pick colors that could be sort of a way to move through emotions and then also to also speak to particular characters we use red white and blue the colors of the flag as these colors that were sort of significant uh, four, for moments in the, in the film. So when all of the, 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 the confrontation is between the Chicago police department, which is significantly blue. And so that the counterpoint to that wasn't, was another group bl- blue grouping that I did, which was all of the protesting, like when Tom Hayden, Rennie, uh, Dave Dellinger, uh, uh, uh jerry rubin and abby hoffman are all together we we i use a lot of blues uh, just sometimes very subtly but that's how i sort of marked them together and then when we ever saw them separated the uh protesters you know those group i just talked about we used sort of like whites and ivories to sort of speak to them when they were outside of them being clumped together and then reds i used more as about uh, as a uh, as a link for all those those traditional power structures, so when we're in the courthouse and when we're in the attorney general's office, we have those hits of like reds and burgundies.
1: Creating costumes for the large ensemble cast set a relentless pace for costume designer Susan Lyle. I have come up with 382 principal costumes. That
5: is before police officers and extras. So that is a lot. That's a lot. Even I, I, I was sort of. Oh, is that a lot? <laughs> but on Molly's game, Jessica Chastain had 90-something changes alone. There were some days in the courtroom when our seven plus Bobby plus Kunstler plus Wineglass plus Schultz and uh, Foran and the judge, you know, they would have to all change. It was, all, it was 19 nineteen in that little core. Two or three times a day sometimes. And, and then there's also the jury, the court clerk, the stenographer, the bailiffs, the, you, you, and the gallery. It was really something. It was very, very busy. Every minute of the day was very, very busy. There were no periods of
1: waiting around and nothing to do. The scale of the challenge also extended to the extras, and Lyle estimates her biggest day called for around 400 costumes.
5: In an odd way, we, we, we create almost like a department store of clothing. We need everything from... We need summer, we need winter, we need med women and children. We need college students, we need conservatives, we need middle-class uh, and working-class Chicagoans, we need uh, Black Panthers, we need uh, yippies. We need the students from the Democratic Society who are the followers of Tom Hayden, and uh, we need the followers of David Dellinger so they're a little older. You know, there's, there are all these sort
1: of microcosms of types of people that have to be considered. The scenes of the gatherings and demonstrations, as well as the violence that erupted between the police and protesters, were filmed over several days and nights in Chicago's Grant Park, across from the Hilton Hotel on Michigan Avenue, where many of the convention delegates had stayed, and by the Logan statue, the hilltop monument that served as a gathering point for demonstrators. When the riots break out, the power of those scenes, as you'll hear in this clip, is explosive.
0: Someone from the crowd shouts.
1: A guy somewhere in the crowd
2: shouts. Someone in the crowd shouted.
1: Take the Hell! Production designer Steve Valentino speaks to the importance of those locations.
4: Shooting in Chicago is important because those streets, in, in and of themselves, as a space, say tremendous amount beyond recreation. Right? I, I mean, we could do a rep- we could reproduce a like a, a walking bridge uh, on a, you know somewhere in the world, but to be able to shoot the ones that are off of Michigan, they're significant. Right? I mean, you get tremendous value in that. You know, you get. Scope, which is something that's really important to cinema.
1: Faden Papa Michael first researched the settings using archival photographs and documentary footage. Surprisingly, he found that the story's main sites had not changed significantly since 1968.
3: We shot in, in Grand Park in, in front of a Hilton, uh, the actual footbridges, which, uh, amazingly enough, uh, we looked at, you know, uh, photographs from the 60s. And there's, of course, some new buildings that, you know, we could fix a, a bit in post, but it's, it turned out that we,
1: we'll have to do very little. To capture the riot scenes, Papa Michael used several different cameras, including two free-robing cameras, a handheld camera, a cam, or sometimes two handheld cameras. He also used vintage widescreen lenses that helped create a dreamy, surreal atmosphere that contrasted with the courtroom scenes.
3: Where we have a lot of movement, uh, all of the Chicago riots all really has that energy from almost like, you know, Haskell Wexler's made him cool. so we did a uh, handheld, and it has a very, very different energy uh, in terms of uh, the framing and the compositions, and uh, really gives a lot of energy that, since it's intercutting, it's really a nice uh, juxtaposition to the two uh, visual spheres of the movie.
1: When it came time to edit those scenes, Alan Baumgarten intercut footage from the actual riots, as well as footage from the film that inspired Papa Michael, Haskell Wexler's Medium Cool a cinema-verte-style drama set in Chicago in the summer of 1968.
2: Partway through the edit, Aaron decided we should explore putting some archival footage into the riots. We had a bunch of material that we'd been looking at for reference uh, from the events of that time, and we decided to use a little bit of it during the first riot, and we clearly said we'd make it black and white right away, just so it would separate and be an obvious... Uh, reference in in terms of being authentic and giving it some energy and being almost like a touchstone or a brushstroke uh, to augment the material that we had, which was already very powerful. Aaron felt that if we just used it sparingly, and that was my intent, to just use little bits, he let me go with it and I kind of found a balance. And it was all done by feel, really. To just inject a little bit here and there.
1: Stock footage was also used to great effect in the prologue, which opens the film.
2: The opening prologue was a lot of fun to work on. Uh, most of it was right there on the page uh, in the script. Aaron had included the stock footage of Martin Luther King's assassination, Bobby Kennedy, some of the Vietnam footage, the newscasters and the uh, police uh, assembling and gathering to, uh, you know, be there for the convention and so forth. So, We knew we had that exciting material in news broadcasts and so forth, but the challenge was also to introduce our characters. And so the prologue has a very interesting rhythm or a combination of rhythms because some of the background information is done quite quickly in flashes with little bits of uh, stock footage and uh, newscaster audio. But then we also settle in for more extended bits, which slow that sequence down and change direction because we're meeting our characters.
1: We can hear the artfulness of the prologue and the editing in this brief clip.
2: We're going to Chicago peacefully. We're going peacefully. But if we're met there with violence, you better believe that we're going to meet that violence with
0: nonviolence. Always nonviolence. And that's without exception.
1: When it came time to historical research, production designer Shane Valentino thought carefully about the worlds he was creating, particularly the Black Panther's headquarters.
4: We're in a day and age where I think we are far more aware of how we occupy spaces and how we represent spaces. And so I wanted to actually... Not just show uh, the Black Panthers as this militarized group. The approach to me was to try and highlight uh, a lot of the different programs that were part of the Black Panther. I mean, we're only in it for a very short amount of time, probably like a page, but we decided to do a uh, cam shot, and we start, and we can look into some other rooms, and so we try to show how they had food drives, and they had clothing drives, and they had all these kind of educational programs.
1: For costume designer Susan Lyle, historical references were a source of inspiration, and she sourced vintage pieces extensively. My
5: approach was to look up what was real and start there, and then make it cinematic. Most everything is is a period piece in this film. I rented from all these different costume houses. Actually, I tried to keep it more of a northeast feel to it because it has a certain feel and certain look to it that I thought was more appropriate. And actually did a lot of sourcing in
1: Chicago uh, just because it's so great to do out there. For the character Richard Schultz, played in the film by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Lyle found some particularly special pieces. His... Suits came from a rental
5: house that had just acquired an estate in, around Albany, New York, and the suits came from the estate of Robert Abrams, who used to be the attorney general, the state of New York attorney general. He was very popular in, in the early 70s. In the, in the 60s, he probably he wasn't quite uh, the, the attorney, state attorney general. But his suits all came from Brooks Brothers, and they all have his name inside, and they all are dated. And several of them were dated August 15th, 1969, which is, you know, a month before the trial was to begin. They fit him pretty well, I have to say. He put it on, I was like, I cannot believe he's gonna wear a Robert Abrams suit. This is about as period accurate as you can get.
1: Lyle worked closely with the actors, who came prepared with their own research and thoughts about their characters. Jerry Rubin is, he's our
5: headband man, and he is our stripes and gold and green man. Jeremy Strong arrived at his first fitting wearing a headband that he found himself, and then he slowly started to show me a few more he'd found, and I worked with Jeremy before, in fact, on Molly's Game, uh, I understand how he works. He's a very method actor and really thoughtful, and really cares about his costume and his his hair and his his makeup. And uh, he was a lot of fun for me. Um, he was really daring. Sasha Baron Cohen, in playing Abby Hoffman, wanted to make sure that whatever costume he wore, there was a reference in reality, in history. Abby was seen in it somewhere before. So we pretty much faithfully recreated things for him. It was the birth of modern activism, and it was being loud, and it was being uh, colorful, and it was drawing attention to yourselves. And they often did it in their clothing. I would say that Abby Hoffman was very calculated in everything he wore, even though, It's supposed to appear as if he so unassumingly got out of bed and put on this shirt that has a snake embroidered all the way up. He understood that he would be photographed,
1: I'm sure of it, and uh, he knew what he was doing. As the film entered post-production, the timeliness of the story and the parallels with events happening in America today came into sharp focus. As we conclude this episode, I leave you with editor Alan Baumgarten, who explains.
2: As it happened when we were finishing this film, the events that we've now been witnessing for the past several months of uh, protest and civil unrest and police in the streets of of cities across the country were happening on the nightly news. It was quite a big shock, really, and chilling to see um, tear gas, police attacking protesters, uh, the police taking off badges, the military presence in the streets, and know that you know, just the day before we were locking picture or mixing the sound and doing color correction. So as we were finishing this film, we were literally seeing some of the same images and content and material playing out in, in real life in our own world. The interesting, it was interesting because I think Aaron felt that this film would always be relevant this story from 1968 was important and would be worth telling and audiences would hopefully take a lot from it but never did we ever expect that it would sort of uh, focus to the extent that it has on a parallel and almost a, an overlap of what's happening now so it was a quite um, overwhelming in a sense for us to be finishing this film as some of this was actually happening
1: i hope you enjoyed this episode next time Writer-director Aaron Sorkin will be joining the series once again to reflect on the journey of his career.
5: I would give anything to have A Few Good Men back and write it over again. Writers get better when they get older, like symphony conductors,
4: not like athletes. We get better as we get older, and I would just love to have that one back.
1: The Trial of the Chicago 7 is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you've been listening. Thank you for joining us.